1944, there was a mass escape from a German prisoner of war camp in Poland. And one of the men who was there wrote a book called The Great Escape, which produced a famous old film now. Uh, in the early 60s, Steve McQueen and uh, James Garner. And the, the, the book tells the story of extraordinary human ingenuity and resilience in the face of extraordinary cruelty and wickedness. 250 men planned to break out of that camp at the same time, and they'd built three separate tunnels. You may know the story. They called them Tom, Dick, and Harry. But only 70 men in the end got away, and 50 of the men were recaptured and shot dead in cold blood by the Gestapo. And three of them eventually made it home safely. And Paul Brickhill, there, whose name is on the book, wrote down what happened, and he wrote the book in memory of the 50 men who were murdered by the Gestapo for making that great escape. Well, if you look briefly with me at 1 Samuel chapter 19, and just rather like a kind of helicopter, hover over the passage for a moment or two. We often use the kind of picture of a helicopter way saying, let's get a view of the shape of this before we get into it. In this particular chapter, there are four great escapes. We're going to come to them in a minute. Don't worry about them now. God rescues David through Saul's son and Saul's daughter, through Saul's arm and through his own spirit. But if you look at the chapter, it's a particularly, in a sense, clear case of the difficulty of traveling from the Old Testament to here securely. Uh, too often, don't we, um, preachers slip into application of passages which, which go along these lines. They say, go and read the Bible more, go and pray more, and go and talk to your friends more about Jesus. But it's very difficult in this particular passage to see how you get to that application, isn't it, from these particular words. Sometimes we read a passage and we sort of say, well, okay, I, I could then, is there an example here for me to follow? But actually, if you look at the passage, David says nothing. We never hear anything from him. And in a sense, he does nothing either. Things are done to him. Yes, he's victorious in battle, but a lot of other stuff happens around him. And so it's a particularly sharp exa example, if you like, of how shall we travel from a chapter like that to whatever's going to be in my next week's diary, to whatever is happening in my family, to whatever kind of anxiety I have in my own heart about my spiritual frailty or, or waywardness or or just challenges that are coming up that I'm finding tricky. How do we get from a chapter like that with the story of four great escapes that are so different from our experience and find how can this be God's word to us, speaking to us, about the challenges we face today and tomorrow? So what I want to do today is something slightly different, the same basic shape to the journey that we're going to make but what I want to do is to show you that we can start here. So we can start with ourselves and our own concerns, focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then travel back to this story on the stage, as we're used to that language now, and get into the details of the story, and then return. And as we do so, I will be praying that what we have just been singing will prove to be true, that by making that journey the other way around, that God will, in his kindness, show us Christ freshly and show us new things about the glory of the Lord Jesus that each of us can see personally. Because on the assumption that the Lord Jesus is great King David's greater son, 
and it's that simple truth that is repeatedly taught from the first verse of the New Testament onwards. It's safe to travel from the Saviour, if you like, back to the stage, back to the story, and then travel around the, the same journey that we've made several times over. So that's why we had Hebrews read. You don't need to turn to it. I just want you to come to the story that we're going to read in a few moments with Hebrews 12 and verse 3 in mind. And that little phrase there, consider him, the Lord Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I know when the last time was that you spent any time considering the Lord Jesus and the extent of the opposition that he endured. But Hebrews tells us that if we do that, that will encourage us and enable us to keep going with whatever kind of opposition we might find ourselves facing, with whatever obstacles we might find ourselves enduring. So by way of a change this morning, we're going to start with just talking to somebody near you. And I'm going to ask you to consider him, to consider the Lord Jesus. And if you could do this, think of at least three forms of opposition that he faced. Or think of at least three key moments of... um, key episodes where he endured opposition. Can you do that? Three kinds of opposition or three episodes where he endured opposition. What that'll do is then fire us up and equip us for when we go back uh, and uh, think together about the shape of David's great escapes. Three types of opposition or three episodes that Jesus faced. Off you go. Okay, that's not too hard, is it? You could do both quite easily. Three types of opposition. Striking, isn't it, that he's on the run as a refugee within a matter of months of his birth. Off he goes to Egypt as uh, Herod sends the soldiers to kill all the boys in the village where he was born. And from then on, opposition of all different kinds. And we'll come back to that uh, in a bit. So we're heading off into the chapter. And uh, as I said earlier, in this chapter, David is silent. He says nothing. He talks, obviously, in conversation to the major players. But none of his words are recorded for us to hear. We're all time left to draw our own conclusions. So here are four great escapes. And the first, Saul's son saves David. We're picking up the story after David's killed Goliath, and he's returned to Saul's court. Uh, In a previous chapter, Saul has already thrown a spear at him and sent David out towards so that the Philistines can kill him. But unhappily for Saul, David was victorious in every skirmish. God was with him. That's before this chapter. So Saul tried again. He'd offered David his daughter in marriage. That was the deal, you remember? If David would kill 100 enemy soldiers, because that seems like enough odds, doesn't it, to, to, to do the deed, to get him killed. But David and his men kill 200 soldiers, so now that he is Saul's son-in-law. And look in verse 1. Striking line, isn't it? David told his son and all the attendants to kill David. So the first item on the agenda at the cabinet meeting on that particular morning was murder. And death is a key word in this chapter. It appears uh, in uh, eight different verses. Verse 1, kill David. Verse 2, Jonathan says, my father Saul's looking for a chance to kill you. We'll come to them, but verse 5, verse 6, verse 11 twice, verse 15 and 17. Eight references. 1, 2, 5, 6, 11 twice, 15 and 17. 
But Saul's own son, when he sees that first item on the agenda at the meeting, sides with David against his father. And you see the second line, Jonathan had taken a great liking to David, who was fond of David. And so Jonathan warns David to hide himself and promises that he'll speak to his father on David's behalf and then report back to David. And verses 4 and 5 then record Jonathan's speech in David's defense. And there's very gentle and but very plain logic in Jonathan's speech to his father. David has not wronged you. David had risked his life against Goliath, the giant. God won a great victory for us on that day, and you were pretty chuffed about it. Why do wrong to an innocent man by killing him for no reason? There's a persuasive, powerful logic in Jonathan's approach. In verse 6, Saul is persuaded, at least so far, by his son, and he backs off, and he swears an oath not to kill David. And then in verse 7, David is back on the payroll. Extraordinary, isn't it, transformation? First item on the agenda at the the beginning of the meeting is murder. By the end, Saul has sworn an oath not to commit murder after all, and David is back um, in-house, as it were. And there, very straightforwardly told, is David's first great escape. We've no idea what David thought about it or what he felt about it. At the moment, that doesn't matter. The storyteller just tells us this is what happened, another episode. And here is God using Jonathan's affection for David and Jonathan's sense of justice and fair play to save David. Are you happy with that? So Saul's son saves David. Scene two. This time Saul's arm saves David. Look in verse eight. Once more it's business as usual. David goes to war again. David wins again. Wherever he goes, he wins But in verses 9 and 10, back in Saul's house, as we read earlier, there's trouble. And uh, David is playing his harp to soothe Saul's troubled mind. Saul is in some way disturbed again. And this time we're told plainly that God is at work in in Saul, gradually dismantling him. There's a kind of spirit at work in Saul, producing disaster and destroying Saul's judgment. And so Saul takes an aim, a pot shot, we might say, at David. What David did to the Philistines in verse 8, striking them down, Saul tries to do to David, striking him down. The language is the same. Here is King Saul, in a sense, treating God's chosen one, David, as if David is one of God's enemies in the same category as one of the Philistines. But Saul misses, and his arm lets him down. And there's David's second great escape. We're not told what he thought about God's protection as the spear quivered in the wall just beside him. We've no idea what he felt about it. And uh, I love that verse that was read to us earlier, the one just after the consider him verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, where it says, well, at least you're not dead yet. That seems to me great encouragement in the Christian life and uh, I recommend it to you if you have a discouraged friend and they come to you and they say, I'm feeling really, you can say, well, at least you're not dead yet. The spear may not have missed by much, but it missed and that's what matters. So there's the second great escape in the chapter. Now here's the third, Saul's daughter saves David. So verse 11, you remember it was read to us, Saul sends the soldiers to David's house there to kill him in the morning. 
uh, verse 6, do you remember what he swore? He swore not to kill David. He swore before the Lord not to kill David, but now he's changed his mind. And Saul's daughter, Michal, sides with David against her father, just as Jonathan, her brother, has sided with David earlier. And David escapes without his dignity, but uh, with his life intact, by climbing out of the bedroom window. And you see what uh, Michal does? Uh, verse 13, she takes an idol. We're not quite sure what that's doing there. Sticks it into the bed to fool the soldiers. We don't know who owned the idol. But there was a similar episode, you remember, back in Genesis. Someone's been reading Genesis. And you remember when Rebecca deceived her father and stole his household? Anyway, there's a kind of echo of the earlier story. The soldiers go back to Saul and tell him that David is uh, in bed. He's, he's sick, says his wife. And he sends them back to fetch David. It looks like he sends them to fetch David and the bed. You know, bring David and the bed. But anyway, to bring David so they can kill him. And then they return, they break into the bedroom, they find out that Saul's daughter has been deceiving them. And you look at that question that Saul asks his daughter, why did you deceive me? It's pretty rich coming from him, isn't it? Since he deceived David into thinking that he wanted him as his son-in-law, when in fact all he wanted was for David to be killed in battle, uh, and he tried to have David killed by those hundred enemy soldiers. And now Saul's daughter lies to him about what David had said to her the night before. Do you see that? She pretends to be loyal to her father, just like her father has pretended to be loyal to David. And so she cooks up this story uh, that uh, David has threatened to kill her. She's very uncomfortably like her father, isn't she? So there's David's third great escape. And we're not told about what he thought about God's provision for him as he climbed out of the bedroom window. We don't know if the statue in the bed was his idea or hers. We don't know if he was still there when she set up the bed. What matters is, in the end, the love of Saul's daughter saves David. So three quite different, quite remarkable, extraordinary, great escapes. And here's a fourth one. God's spirit saves David. So as you see that uh, David escapes to Ramah, that's uh, Samuel's hometown. He, sells, he tells Samuel everything. Now this is only two or three miles from Gibeah, and uh, it would take less than an hour down the hill on foot. And Ramah was where Saul first met Samuel. And in this same place, David now seem, seeks refuge, where it says Naoth. That probably refers to sort of shepherd's tents or dwellings just outside the town where Samuel's sort of um, uh, Cornhill course uh, and sort of you know, school of prophets uh, was, was based. And eventually Saul finds out where David has gone, so he sends a group of men to capture him. But look what happens when these men come down. There's Samuel with the prophets prophesying. We're told the Spirit of God comes down on these soldiers and they join in. And with great respect to those who are about to join the military, soldiers are not always famous for their spirituality. They're rendered incapable of arresting David. And Saul hears what happened. He says, well, what's, what's, what's one group of soldiers? He sends another. And the same thing happens again. And then another. And so Saul decides he, he better go himself. You know how that feeling comes to us if you want to do something properly. In the end, you have to do it yourself. And the last time Saul went down to Rama, he was looking for a lost donkey. And he met Samuel at that point. And the last time he was there, he was anointed by Samuel to 
the Israel's first king. And now Saul is not now looking for a donkey, he's now looking for his son-in-law so that he can kill him. And he establishes that David and Samuel and the prophets are still at home. And in verse 23, do you see the same thing happens to him? Instead of arresting David, Saul joins in praising God or proclaiming God's word with the rest of Samuel's men. And he takes his royal kit off. He has to lie down. He stays there incapable of getting up for a day and a night. We've heard that question, is Saul among the prophets before? And you may remember where we've heard it before. The first time the people talk like that about Saul was just after Saul left Ramah. Right back at the start of Saul's story, God's spirit fills God's anointed king, confirming him as God's choice, equipping to rescue God's people from their enemies. And this time, God's spirit strips Saul and stops Saul from killing God's chosen one. It's a tragic kind of trajectory in the shape of Saul's life and ending. And there's David's fourth great escape. Yeah, we're not told what David made of it. He doesn't sort of pause and tell us, Do you know, this has been a really bad day. He doesn't say anything like that. When three platoons of soldiers, one after the other, put down their weapons and joined the choir. We're not told how David felt about it when he saw the king stripped of his clothes and rendered helpless and powerless by the Spirit of God. The point is that God himself has directly intervened to rescue David. So what are we going to make of it? I hope you can see as we've gone through it, it's extremely hard to see how from this passage we should draw the application that's very important to go and read our Bibles more. It's very difficult to draw the application that we should go and talk to our friends about Jesus more. And it's very difficult to see how we should... um, Uh, spend more time in prayer as a result of having read this particular passage. So how are we going to interpret it? Well, you know the answer to that now. You've got your favorite phrase ready from Hannah's song that you used yesterday, two or three times yesterday. Would you put it to work again now? Talk to your person sitting next to you, if it's a different person from last time. You remember Hannah's song? You chose a favorite phrase. Will you bring the phrase you chose from Hannah's song to this particular story and see how it helps make sense of the action in these four scenes. Off you go. Okay, let's uh, come back together again. I hope what you've been finding is that Hannah's song is, is extraordinarily powerful. That actually, again, you can take a phrase from the song and bring it to this particular chapter. And we were seeing, uh, just two, 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 three of us talking together, how two different phrases can come to the chapter. So what was the first phrase? Tell us the first phrase, your phrase. No one can save, is that right? Can succeed. No one can succeed by strength alone. And you can see that actually David, in a sense, is in a position of weakness in each of these particular episodes. And it's, it's God who comes to the rescue each time. And then your phrase? There is none holy like the Lord. Now that phrase from Hannah's song makes us ask the question, who is holy in this chapter? Well, not Saul, not Saul's son necessarily, although he doesn't sort of do too badly, but definitely not Saul's daughter. 
And there's a question mark over David that's slightly unresolved. What was that statue doing in his house? Had she got it hiding in the wardrobe or was he kind of letting it happen? We don't, we don't know. We can't tell for certain. But we can say for certain that there's no one who's like God in this chapter. Do you see that? And that helps us have confidence as we come to the chapter to, to find our way through. Otherwise, it seems like a very sort of chaotic series of events where everything seems to be out of control. And we're not sure, in a sense, where the plot is going. Let's press on. Let me su suggest a way of setting these four stories side by side. It seems to me that, uh, and I've tried to put them in the, in the headings there, what's, what's drawing the chapter together is the God who saves. And he saves David through Saul's son. You've worked on the backing track. Let me go on here to the God who saves. Through Saul's son, through Saul's poor Abe, or his arm if you like, through Saul's daughter, and through his spirit. We were expecting, in a way, God to use Samuel to save, save David when he went to tell Samuel about it. That was presumably the point of going to tell Samuel about it. But in the end, God himself intervened directly there. But whenever God saves, however God saves, it's always God who saves. David couldn't get to the end of the chapter and say, well, didn't I do well? Like Houdini to get myself out of all that lot. He didn't. It was other people and God himself who intervened throughout the chapter. And it seems to me one of the things, again, that's very remarkable about the chapter is it shows us the many different ways in which God saves, the different means that God uses to save. So do you see how he uses Jonathan's love for his friend, the logic of Jonathan's arguments, Saul's spear, Saul's arm, Saul's aim, David's wife, the bedroom window, and then directly rendering David's enemies helpless in order to rescue him. And as God saves, there are a variety of different experiences for David as to what it feels like or involves to be saved by God uh, at this stage. So David has to hide in bushes, perhaps, while Jonathan argues with his father. He does his job as a harpist when there's a, suddenly a spear in the wall beside him. He's at work, as it were, at that point. He has to run for his life, leaping out of the bedroom window as the soldiers hammer on the door. And he simply watches as three companies of soldiers, one after the other, and then the king, are rendered helpless by the supernatural power of God. And as these accumulated attempts from Saul to murder David sort of follow each other, something almost comic about them, isn't there? First, it's uh, Saul's enemy is going to be repeatedly saved by Saul's family, who initially undermines Saul's plan to kill David. It's Saul's own son. Who covers up David's escape? It's Saul's own daughter. There's something very wonderful about God's capacity to save, to save his king. And you can see where this is heading. That takes us back to the pattern of protection that God shows us in the life of the Lord Jesus. So I could have chosen any number of examples. Uh, Herod is determined to murder him, isn't he? Matthew, chapter 2. Remember, all these little boys killed uh, by the soldiers to try to kill Jesus. Luke 4, do you remember? The people of his own town are determined to murder him. And he walks through them. A crowd tries to kill him in John 8. He hides himself away. The forces of darkness try to drown him in Mark 4. Remember, he's going across the, the, the lake 
It looks as if behind the storm is a kind of sort of satanic opposition to him. The language there echoes the demons in the um, synagogue at Capernaum earlier in Mark. But the point is this, step by step and scene by scene, God protects the Lord Jesus until it's time for him to withdraw his protection from him. Do you see that? On Good Friday, the Lord Jesus goes without God's protection in our place, no longer saved by his Father, that we may be saved by his death. He dies to pay the price of our forgiveness. So now as we travel back around the, the journey we've made several times before, we've gone from the story to the stage, you've listened to the backing track, I've started work on thinking with you about the Savior and the way in which God is, saves his Savior until it's time for the Savior to do his salvation work for us. Come to the stalls. What difference does it make to have made this journey? What, what does Hebrews 12 add to our understanding as we read 1 Samuel 19? Let me put it like this. I'll ask you three questions, and you can just talk to, them, to each other about them. What is God doing for his children through their suffering in Hebrews 12? Do you remember that from the start? What is God doing for his children through their suffering in Hebrews 12? That's the first question. Go to Hebrews 12, because you've got Samuel in your head. What is God doing for his children through their suffering in Hebrews 12? That's the first question. Second question, what is God doing for David through his suffering in 1 Samuel? And then what, is God, what was God doing for Jesus through his suffering on the way to the cross? I'm thinking of the suffering on the way to the cross, okay? So what, was, what does God do for his children, according to Hebrews 12? Therefore, what was God doing for David in all this suffering on his way to the throne? And what was God doing for Jesus through his suffering on his way to the cross? Off you go. And then we've got uh, two more minutes to finish off. Okay? So just think about those questions about suffering. What was God doing for his children, says Hebrews 12? And essentially the answer is, isn't it? That's one very straightforward. As a father disciplines his children, so God, through it, in it, allowing suffering, trains us. Off you go. What was God doing for David and what was God doing for Jesus through the suffering on the way to the throne on the way to the cross? Okay, let's come back together. Let's get together, shall we? Hebrews 12 is very insistent, isn't it? You're not dead yet because God hasn't finished training you. Do you see that? And the way Hebrews 12 insists that actually not to be disciplined by God would be a sign that he didn't love us talks about parents who love their children enough to discipline them. It doesn't always play very well with the children where you say, I love you enough to discipline you. Um, but actually, that's true, and it's helpful uh, for children to hear that from their parents. So we were talking just now about God training David through his suffering. God showing David, who's really in charge. David's about to go onto the throne, but he's being taught again and again as God saves him, intervenes for him in ways he must have found extraordinary and astonishing. To, to insist that it's God who's in charge. And David, although described as a man after God's own heart, he's going to turn out to be a sinner in all kinds of ways that we recognize. What's striking, it seems to me, is that the Lord Jesus, who is without sin, still endures this 
recognizable opposition and suffering. Do you see that? In other words, even though the Lord Jesus himself is fully without sin, there is a sense in which he learns in practice what it means to trust God in the face of extraordinary opposition of a kind that is even greater than the kind that David has faced. And there is a real sense in which God saves Jesus on his way to the cross. Not from stuff that's happened to him, because he's in any way sin, we know that isn't true. But he teaches the Lord Jesus to continue to trust him in practice through extraordinary opposition that we might not otherwise notice unless Hebrews tells us, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you see that? That seems to me to be immensely encouraging and fresh. So when we come to the scriptures and we read the phrase, God saves, six-year-olds in our churches say, well, I know that, it's about the cross, that's what happens. But actually, no, it is, but, but also God saves turns out to have a meaning ahead of the cross for Jesus, ahead of the throne for David, and God saves turns out to be our present experience saves us from our sin, but also saves us from death for as long as he wants us to have life. Now, how encouraging is that? He allows us to suffer just as he allowed his own son to suffer, as he allowed the Lord Jesus to suffer. But he loves us enough to do this disciplining work in us. You know how Matthew 6 records the Lord Jesus speaking about the flowers and the birds and encouraging us to look at the birds and see how God gives them food, even though they're not farmers. And to look at the birds and see how God gives them clothes, even though they're not, though they're not tailors, they don't have to sew or spin. I have a colleague who's a, uh, a real birder, he can do birds from sound, and uh, walk around in the trees and say, oh, that's a, no, no, that's a, that's a, I'd love the fact that you can do that. And our whole church family has been enjoying chiff chaffs this particular year through his influence. A chiff chaff weighs about six or ten grams, depending on whether it's being eaten, hasn't had any sort of worms recently. And it flies 4,000 miles to Africa and back twice a year. So it goes, stays, comes back again. And it comes at just the right time to have food in the trees in our particular uh, part of the world. You have the same here. And Jesus says, look at that. He almost says, how cool is that? Our Heavenly Father feeds a little bird like that, capable of flying 4,000 miles. And don't you think you're more valuable than that? But at the same time, Christians get shot and blown up and killed in all sorts of ways. And Christians get sick and hurt and old and lonely and cold and hungry, as everybody knows. And Christians suffer, and sometimes dreadfully. And Christians also experience near misses. And Christians sometimes enjoy miraculous escapes. And so the story of David's four great escapes set on stage for us with the backing track to interpret his experience for us reassures us that whatever happens to us, just that whatever happened to the Lord Jesus on the way to the cross wasn't going to kill him because it was God's purpose for him to get to the cross for us. In a sense, whatever happens to us, God's presence goes with us. God's protection is always available to us. We're immortal until our work is done. We're immortal on earth till our work is done. So how shall we respond to the God who saves? It seems to me, let's praise him for his power to save, to save us from sin supremely, 
but to save us day by day from all kinds of danger and difficulty and hostility and opposition and persecution. Martin Luther knew of the power of the God who saves. We need to know his power and trust in him and then get on with what is there to be done. Get on with what is ordinary that he's given us to do. You're all serving him in all kinds of different spheres. The chapter is written to encourage us that he'll go on taking care of us in those different spheres until our work is done. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the living God who is the God who saves. And as we look back and see you saving David repeatedly in all kinds of ways, some of which were ordinary, some were extraordinary, we thank you. And we thank you for the way in which you saved the Lord Jesus on the way to the cross where his saving work would be done. And in him we thank you that we can have confidence that you will be present with us. That in your gracious power you will preserve, protect us, feed us the way you feed birds, clothe us the way you clothe flowers, and preserve our life from those who would oppose us show hostility towards us, reject us, remove us from places previously where we could move freely, speak freely. And so we ask that you'll give us growing confidence in the love and the power of the God who saves. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.